Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We uh, welcome you. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and we'll begin with prayer. Lord, we uh, just pause. Uh, we always have a prayer in our heart, but we uh, just uh, formally, publicly seek you to be with whoever's watching, wherever they're watching, and uh, as we talk and think and discuss and open things up in our Christian walk, we pray for the Spirit, we pray for our volunteers and help and staff and, and uh, just love you and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We don't do shout outs anymore, but a happy birthday to Derek. He's a young man in his 50s these days. We just celebrated it. And you guys hear me mention Derek all the time. So the audience, we've got a full bar in the back, bar of sugar, and everybody is partaking, so it's a festive time. I want to give special thanks to everybody involved in the ministry, volunteers and staff who work hard to keep things afloat, and then other people who do things uh, as well. We have Warren, you go to HOTM, he has his own site, but you can see his shows. We have Bishop Earl who uh, continues on with things. Viewers who watch and pray, give us the benefit of the doubt when, when things can admittedly get a little tough, and those who help us out uh, when they're in the right position and according to God's leading uh, financially. So we have regrouped under a much clearer view of things, and the ministry is growing around the world. The growth is slow, but it's deeply rooted. As people are looking for a better way to relate to God and Christ than what has been done in the past through institutional religion. Cassidy took just a few. All of these are from real emails. She took a few of the emails we get from you guys, and we're so grateful for them. Uh, they cause us to think. And uh, she took a few and put these together, so check this out.
Fed Cast and Steve Utley for the music and uh, for, of course, all of you. And of course, we thank preeminently the true and living God for allowing to be part of uh, this, his ministry, we believe. So how about with that, a moment from the word. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Last week, we sat down with Matt Slick of CARM and had a good discussion about the Word of God. The next morning, I opened up the Bible, and before I continue on with the study I did the day before, I just perused through wherever I happened to land, maybe some of you do that, and just kind of look to see former notes and whatever. And I landed on this verse in Deuteronomy, which uh, are pertinent to Mormonism, but are really key to understanding the heart of God. It said, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them, thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord God proveth you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and cleave unto him and that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So thou shalt put the evil away from the midst of thee. And I read that, and it just kind of hit me, and I thought, okay, I remember reading those verses before. In addition to the topic uh, of false prophets, I couldn't help notice the, the underlying topic of idolatry in that, uh, in people running after other gods, and the heinous nature of idolatry in the Bible. When it comes to the sins of people, uh, I have long maintained that at the top of the list, it, when it comes to God, is idolatry. Um, interestingly enough, almost all, if not all sins, ultimately include some form of idolatry. And it's no wonder that, then that the first of the Ten Commandments is, there is one God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And as I moved on in my study, picking up from where I left off the day before in 1 Corinthians, this is where I was, and I read in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, lowercase g, lowercase l, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. I took special notice of verse 6, for though there be, there are be, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and lords many, lowercase, lots of idols and gods out there, lots of things that we could put before the true God. He goes on and says at verse 6, But to us there is but one God, 
the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And we know that within Jesus Christ, the fullness of the God of God dwelled bodily. So we have always worshipped one God, who uh, Paul says, the Father. One God, no other. And we have always worshipped one Lord and one Savior, his Son, God, Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realized something, especially in light of last week's topic with uh, Matt, and this might be obvious to you, but one of the main reasons that we read and study the Word of God, one of the main reasons God has gifted us with His Word is that by considering its contents, it helps us avoid the trappings of idolatry. Just by reading and hearing it, it helps keep our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hearts focused on Him because the book's about Him and we're reading His Word. And so it keeps us from idolatry of worshiping other gods, of breaking that first commandment of there being one God and having no other. Uh, so in addition to reading it and learning more about who He is and who His Son is, the Lord Jesus Christ, we also receive instruction and reproof and correction regarding the world's idols that seek to take their place in our lives, whether it be fame or self or sex or drug or worldly wisdom or money or physical appearances or dark forces. Whatever in the world wants to gain our attention, reading the Word keeps us from idolatry, and that's our, our moment uh, from the Word. And with that, how about a minute from the Board of Direction? I'm supposed to be up at the board right now. I'll get there in a second. Here on earth and in almost every area of life, a couple of factors, two things come into play in almost everything we do. It's up on the board. Blank and blank. Time and circumstance. Time and circumstance come into play in almost everything we do. Before going to work when we were young, our dad says, I want you to mow the lawn. And we don't do it. He comes home from work. The next morning he says, Johnny, I want you to mow the lawn before I get home. And we reply, what's the big deal, Dad? You know, can I do it next week? He says, no. We are having people over tomorrow night and it's supposed to rain tomorrow morning. So I want you to do it before I get home tonight. There's time and circumstance involved, time before I get home, and the circumstance, we're having guests and it's going to rain. Time and circumstance are surrounding the directive, Johnny, I want you to mow the lawn before I get home. In our jobs and in our relationship and our education, time and circumstance continually form and create the directives that we receive and give. What time will you pick me up and how should I dress? Time and circumstance. And the directives follow. I'll pick you up at seven and you should wear a dress. Uh, I, want to, I want the plans to be on my desk tomorrow morning because they're gonna be there at noon to pick them up. Time, circumstance, it's, it's the way things are. My point is to show that whether directives are written or spoken, they're almost always including time and circumstance when they're given. That's something we have to remember when we're reading the Word of God. The Old Testament directives were given 
based off a time and a circumstance. The children of Israel were waiting for a promised Messiah. Along the way, they had the law. There was the circumstance. I'm going to give you a Messiah. Abraham talked about it. Moses talked about it. David talked about it. I'm going to give you a Messiah. He will always reign. There was the circumstance. The time was, it's coming in the future, okay? The Gospels reflect the time and circumstance when the Messiah was on earth and he was walking around and he was teaching and he was fulfilling Old Testament circumstances. The book of Acts reflects the time and circumstance when the former covenant was kind of fading out and the new covenant was kind of merging in, okay? But from Acts until the end of the New Testament, uh, even actually through the Gospels, if you look at it, there was a time and circumstance surrounding all the epistolary uh, writings. Time and circumstance is very, very prevalent there. The time was a period before judgment was going to fall on Jerusalem. There were people who were going to be, perish in Gehenna, and there were people who were going to be saved. Those two groups are constantly spoken of in the New Testament. All through the New Testament, especially in the epistles, the apostles are writing to believers in specific areas, and they're saying, watch, watch, be ready, and then know that the end is coming, that the time is at hand, the end of all things is near, etc., etc. I'm coming quickly. All of those things are in there in the time and circumstance parameters of the New Testament. These factors dictated the instructions that were given. Hear me closely. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul delivers a lot of instructions about marriage. Okay? And this is one you probably might recognize. He says in verse 27, Are you bound unto a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from thy wife? Don't seek a wife. Okay? So we read out that today outside of that time and circumstance, and we say, is that still applicable? If I don't have a wife, should I not seek a wife? If I'm bound to a wife, should I not seek to be loosed from her? And we read this, and we kind of sometimes forget the time and circumstance involved. But just let's read on to the next verse. He says, But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she, shall, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. You're going to have trouble if you do this. Okay, we read that now, but listen. But this I say, brethren, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. He's giving the directions on marriage because he knows the time is short. He says, if you're married, stay married. Don't seek to divorce. If you're not married, stay single. You know, if you're going to go on and do it anyway, you haven't sinned, but I'm giving you some directives. He says, the time is short. And this remains that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they had wept not. And they that rejoice as though they had rejoiced not. And they that buy as though they, as though they had possessed not. And they that use this world as not abusing it for the fashion of this world passes away. He says the time is short. The passing of this world that we're in is going to pass away, he says. That's the time and circumstance that Paul wrote those instructions to people on marriage. Okay? 
Reading this, Paul certainly believed that the way of that world, the Judaic world, was about to pass away. Time is short. And his instructions or directives were catered to them at that time and in that circumstance. It's something, it's a mantra I'm just beating into our heads to try to see we have to look at Scripture for who it was written. So if we take that out right now and read it, by the Spirit, it may have application to you. You might read it and say, oh, it's okay that I'm not married. You might read it and say, I should stay married. I'm married. Whatever it is, but we can't take it and say, this is for our time and our circumstance, because it wasn't. The time is not at hand, unless we think that it, it is, and you have that right. So, if he thought that the whole physical world was about to shortly pass, his advice fits that. But Paul... And Paul was not wrong. Paul was right in what he said there. Many uh, Bible uh, believers say the apostles were wrong. They were mistaken on the time and circumstance. And so they were, that's not true. They were absolutely dead on. I trust what they knew and what they wrote. Therefore, his instructions were to them at that time. And it's in light of this that we read his epistles. So are they to be literally taken literally and applied to us today in that sense? May the Spirit guide. That's where the, beautiful, the beauty of the Bible is there, is that if you're having trouble and, and in some area of your life and you read it, the Spirit can apply it to your life then and, and, and to our time and circumstance because it's the living Word and it continues to live by the Spirit in our lives. All right, so to last week, I think it's important I have to make some observations. Before doing so, I want to publicly apologize as the event went south in the last 10 minutes. I am responsible completely, uh, and I take responsibility for how it went, and that, it, because it was on my, uh, my watch. Two days after Brother Matt's visit, I sat down with earphones, and I had two sources from where the last part of the last 10, 12 minutes of the show played, and I transcribed it verbatim. It took me several hours, but I had to do it. And I noted the person who was speaking. I noted the statements that were made, the tone in which the statements were made. I also, if possible, noted gestures, hand gestures, facial expressions, uh, compiled it all together, and I have it in my laptop. Matt was our guest. I was the host. And I should have been in control of the event before it went south. Uh, instead of doing this, I contributed to the situation's decline because I sided with my daughter who had, and I've listened to it, respectfully all the way through, even at the insult at the end, it was respectfully given, but respectfully maintained tone, and, but persistently continued to go and talk to Matt with questions. The problem was not in her questions nor her tone. I listened to them. They were rational. They were even-handed. The problem was not Matt seeking to establish his points uh, relative to the questions asked. Um, the problem was, as I had taught my daughter, that her position on scriptural contradictions was sound. And when she was told there are no contradictions, there are none, and I had taught my own daughter that there were, I did not 
I lost my objectivity, I lost my even tone, and I sided with her. And I picked up a book that uh, lists the contradictions, and that began to team, team up on Matt. And uh, so I, I am the one, uh, we had about 115 minutes of give and take that I thought was extremely beneficial. And I, I, I thought that I dropped the ball in the last 10 to 12. So I'm sorry to you guys, I'm sorry to the body, because what happened was not really the heart of, uh, for many of us. It wasn't from Matt, he's sorry it happened that way. It wasn't from me, I'm sorry it happened that way. And it wasn't from Cassidy, she's sorry it happened that way. Now, I said there was some history with Matt, and there was between my daughters and Matt up the last time he was here, they had an argument. And I thought it was settled. And I'm speaking for her, and I'm sorry, but she believed Matt was very loving in the debate that we had this last time. And she believed that maybe there was an open door where they could dialogue without any animus. And so that's why she went up and started asking the question. She, is, uh, she feels embarrassed for doing it. She doesn't ever want to do it again. Uh, but that was the whole backdrop of that. And I apologize. Another thing. There are some, and I've received some emails and calls and comments, people don't like these debates. They make them uncomfortable. Here's the thing. It's one thing to have a perspective and to keep it insular and never receive any criticism for the perspective. It's another thing to have it challenged by opposing sides of people who know their stuff. And so, uh, I happen to think it's valuable if approached correctly, uh, but it takes some maturity and experience to work the emotional bugs out. And it's not comfortable. It's hard to get along with people who have differing views, but it is necessary if you're going to suggest something that is outside of orthodoxy. So with Jason Wallace and Matt Slick, who represent orthodoxy pretty extremely, it's been good, and we're not doing it anymore, but it's been good to have the subjective view confronted and no, 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 this is how it has to be. And, and thus far, I'm of the opinion that the subjective view has been pretty well challenged by some people who know their stuff. Uh, and um, so I, I, I feel good about the fact that I think it's not perfect, but it held up to some scrutiny, and that was the reason. A brother asked me if I was engaging with Matt to change him. Not in the least. I know very well that uh, what uh, I talk about is, I know it's not going to change Matt, uh, but it was to show that under scrutiny the examination uh, could be considered as viable as orthodoxy and as terrifying as it is to orthodoxy. Whether you agree in the outcome or not, I'm of the opinion that the subjective faith did stand up to orthodoxy and an orthodox inquiry, and therefore it has some chance for longevity. It has some chance now for, for longevity. Those who, who side with us, they side with us. Those who side with Matt win against us. That happens every time. But I thought that this dialogue was a little bit better. Uh, so we're very grateful uh, for Matt and his team, they're willing to participate. For our team, being willing to put up with this again and, and uh, again. Um, but I honestly and I completely respectfully believe, I'm convinced that in some ways, what 
Matt and what Brother Jason Wallace represent are old and dying approaches to the Christian faith. Um, instead of orthodoxy, I'm just going to call it the old guard. And I can't help but see these often literal, black and white, didactic, this is the truth, and if you don't accept it, you're going to burn in hell forever, approaches as once having a place and purpose in historic Christianity due to the fact of time and circumstance and due to the fact that God himself allowed that rhetoric to survive, maybe get us through a certain period of time. But I can't help believe that it's an approach that's on its last leg. This in no way means that Matt or Jason are wrong or that Jesus is on his last leg. I don't mean that. Absolute truth will always abide and uh, that will not cease to be the goal of true believers in God. But I do believe that the old-fashioned dogmatic approach to religion is on its last leg uh, relative to this brave new world, this non-Aldous Huxley brave new world. I think we're, we've entered into it. And it's incumbent then upon believers, it's incumbent upon believers to help usher in this better way while respectfully allowing the old guard to maintain and remain in the, in the fellowship and, and confidence. It's not that Matt's approach is not good. It certainly has had its time and place, and he certainly is, continues to be effective. You should read the emails and the comments about it because he got some great support. Uh, and it remains acceptable in a number of places, especially where people need absolutism in order to trust in their faith. Uh, this approach was effective in a time and place when science was not yet real. It, I mean, it was there, but it was still fumbling around in the dark. Social media did not exist. And before there was a worldwide movement of critical thinking, of open public forum. We have never experienced this before, where someone in India with a third grade education can get online and dialogue with somebody who's a PhD in New York City. This is unheard of. And it opens up the world to say, we're not going to take stuff just at face value anymore just because you say, this is how I interpret it. In my estimation, unfounded or traditional or illogical religious rhetoric tinged with fear and guilt, it's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it anymore with the human crowd. It's not because the human crowd's become more sinful. And in some ways, the human crowd has become more sinful, I guess. But people just don't care enough anymore to let the threats that God will abandon them matter. They don't care anymore. They, their hands are so full with trying to live that when they hear that if you don't do this, God will abandon you, they're like, then let him abandon me. You know, and I think that that's something important for us to recognize. And I believe God who is loving recognizes that. So the approach might be he loves you unconditionally. He has saved you. His son came to bring you good news. Rejoice in it. Take it. Let God work out your problems and differences and issues and proclivities and sins, whatever they are. But know the good news now because people have had it up to here with the old guard and that approach. Simultaneously, I'm also convinced that the business model church, the hate speech church, the snake handling church is going by the wayside. 
It's not that it didn't have its time and or true place. Don't get me wrong. Pure truth, good news, isn't going anywhere. And this is not an attack on the Bible in any sense. It will last and thrive as long as there are believers. Uh, I agree with the promise made in Isaiah 9. I love this. I read it last week at church. It says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government will be on his shoulder. This is the world we live in. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. That's what he's called. Look at all those. Never the apologist, never the, 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 the fear monger, the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. It's rolling forth upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. And the zeal of the Lord of the host will perform this. That's how it ends. So simultaneously, the strategies and the systems and the approaches and the cultures of the old guard are more and more being seen for what they are. There are many ways they're fear-mongering, and there's some, I mean, I hate this term, but there's hate speech, and there's religiously psychotic promulgation of religious myths, and used to fuel an old giant who's still trudging forth and trying to remain, you know, uh, What's that word? Trying to remain, Dave? Relevant. relevant. He's trying to remain relevant. And, and it's just not, I propose we let the, the giant fall. You know, we have people, their hearts are w more worried now of their kids staying off meth than if they go to hell forever. And I'm not preaching a humanist approach to the gospel. I'm just saying, let's get real. You know, let's make the gospel and the churches a place where people can come and be refreshed. Not, not with, um, uh, uh, you know, messages of, of great encouragement. The truth. Refreshed by the truth. But I just think that we, when I listen to the kids today and I look at the colleges and I see others, they're just so busy and so burdened. They don't need to be burdened with more threats of an age that has come and gone. He has had the victory. Let's pre preach and promote that victory in him. So I'm not suggesting anything else. I'm going to use the phrase. I'm just looking to try to help make, I hate this phrase too, it's very modern, the church more sustainable. The, to help make the church more sustainable in, in a world where it's losing ground because we have stayed to the old guard's ways. And we are not suggesting ideas that are outside of the Bible. I believe that every idea can be supported by the Bible of the good news. And I believe that many of the old guard's uh, phrases and rhetorics can be challenged using the Greek and other things. So um, he is our loving creator. The human race fell into sinful ways. He provided us with a Savior who came. He had the victory over sin and death. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. Whether he came back in 70 AD or is still going to come back, that's a big chasm in difference. And we'll have to talk about that later, why that is so important to what we're talking about. But 
up to that point, he has had the victory. He is on the throne. He is with God. God and his son, whom we worship, are looking down on an earth. And so our job is to bring that news to everybody. I'm going to stop there with our message. We'll open up the phone lines. 801-97... No, it's... Oh, it's on here. 5908413. I'm sorry. Next week, we are going to do uh, a time capsule exercise, and then we'll move on into uh, the message. I didn't, just didn't have time. I overprepared. Uh, we don't have a caller. There's a big game on tonight, but I do have a lot of emails that I'd like to get to, and especially in light of what happened last week. And so let's talk. First, uh, apparently during the show last week, there were a number of people making comments uh, on the sidelines, and one of the comments was, even Sean's approach causes division. And uh, I want to address that idea. One of the reasons I embrace subjective Christianity is because I believe that it cannot cause division. I believe it can't. And so I wanted to address that. Uh, I consider it an unassailable uh, because of how we approach it and allowing everybody's personal views to exist. Everybody's. The old guard, the new guard, the whoever. We let it so long as Christ is admitted as Lord and Savior in some semblance or another. Um, so it's not universalism. It's not those who deny Christ. It's not kumbaya for everybody. It's in, within the body. We let doctrinal differences uh, fade. So division seems to occur when others who refuse the views and opinions of other people, insist on dividing over them, okay? That being acknowledged, we can see that this view is incapable of causing division because the view refuses to cause division because it refuses to separate over doctrinal differences. This has been the approach for the past 1900 years. In other words, division only occurs when other believers decide to go against that view. It's when they say, no, on this we must stand and then divide. And so their view is what is doing the dividing, not the subjective view. You see the difference? One possesses the division within it. The other one does not possess any division. The one who brings it to it is deciding to make the division. Therefore, it's not the subjective approach that causes the division that occurs. If we let everybody who says, I, I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I admit that, and I go to my grave with that on my lips, and then we teach the Bible the best we can, and we let people think what they want, it can't, there can't be a division, right? So admittedly, the approach is really brutal to maintain. It's brutal. Add in the ease of having certainty and denominational rites and rituals and customs and traditions. You add the ease in of that, and how people unify under those umbrellas because it makes them feel more secure and how the subjective approach does not give security. Because, and it also requires a lot of maturity because you can't sit in the same room with somebody. You don't believe baptism is necessary and they do. It's really tough to sit in there and hear them make the comment, well, I just don't even think that any of this is necessary and it's really important to your heart. So I know it's tough, it's tough to maintain, but I ardently believe that it's the, only division, it's the only solution to the division in the body, and we want a body that is unified. Online, we read this, uh, number one, doctored video. Um, 
Now what? HOTM hiding the bad stuff like the Mormons? Matt did a great job defending the Word of God. Sean, not so much. I haven't watched HOTM for a long time. Sean sounds like he came out of one cult and he has started his own cult. And we use terms like cult because that, or heretic or apostate, uh, any of those, we use them because they're thought-killing cliches. The LDS used them. Anti-Mormon. It's a thought-killing cliche. We use them against groups who do and think differently than we do. He is a cult leader, and automatically people run. And so this is what was happening there. But for the record, we chose to edit the end of that off um, because it didn't reflect the heart, the real heart, of any three of the persons involved. Any three. And uh, if you want to call that doctrine, call me guilty. You can call me a cult leader for taking the end of that off fine. We left everything else up. But I don't think it was uh, uplifting. I think we, we all failed there a little bit. And I, uh, Matt agrees to take it off. And I agree. And I think Cassidy agreed. I, don't, I didn't even ask her. And uh, we made kind of a decision sitting around here afterward. Should it or shouldn't be? And we kind of unitedly said, yeah, we probably all would want that taken off. And so we did it. We have nothing to hide, uh, so we're not editing uh, doctoring videos in the sinister way. So I just wanted to bring that up. We have Eric in Kalispell, Montana. Let's go to Eric. He must not be a Cubs fan or an Indian? Indian fan. Eric, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How you doing? First time calling. Hey, glad to have you. Yeah, um, just... Real quickly, I, I had a call. Like, I got to call you one of these nights. I, I keep putting it off, putting it off, but I thought I have the time now because my wife is watching the Cubs game, no <laughs> less. So. Got to have something um, to do. Just, yeah. um, I just, real quickly, just thought to tell you, uh, my, my father and my mother <clears throat> were the ones who actually started um, a website called New Order Mormon uh, about 15 years ago. Huh. And, yeah up here in Montana, and um, they, they had actually passed the reins on somebody else who, who went on with it, but uh, they, they were one of those folks that they, they actually left and joined the church several times, and they wanted to have one foot in and one foot out, and eventually they came to the realization that it just can't work. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You either want everything or nothing. You probably obviously know what I'm talking about. Sure. Um, Anyways, I have a brother who's been really on a he's been on a kick about uh, the Trinity, and he's you know he he's goes he goes to the LDS church and he's Mormon, but just with the way our parents were with the Order of Mormon and kind of being very intellectual, um, he's very still kind of open to different ideas. So he's not completely you know fully into the idea of the Mormon Trinity. But I was going to ask you, are there any kind of first? first-line books or references you recommend that explain maybe more the oneness of God as opposed to the Mormon idea of the Trinity that you think you maybe would appreciate well, kind of a primer? Well, the LDS believe in a triunity rather than a trinity in the classic correct. sense. That's correct. Yeah. So books, are you talking about, do I have any books that will talk about uh, the oneness of God versus the trinity? Correct, yeah. yeah. So that he can... Because the concept is foreign to him. He's my youngest brother, so he's not really... It's really kind of foreign if you're, if you're Mormon. You're really... Because I was raised in, in the Church, and it's really... The idea of really a oneness God is a very foreign concept, because everything from God being pure spirit 
to in the LDS being like a glorified physical being. It's just everything is so different. It is. So and, and that's a, I just don't know if there's anything that you would recommend as, you know, a first line of just getting the basics down. You know, uh, uh, unfortunately, Eric, I am more of a, of a, what in the Christian world they would call me more of a oneness. I believe the Father and I believe the Son, I believe the Holy Spirit are God. I believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. I don't believe the Holy Spirit is a person. I think it, the Holy Spirit is an it. The Spirit of God. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so yeah. I'm probably not the one to direct you to how to teach your brother who's been inculcated by LDS teachings on a, a triune God. Uh, you know, it's really something that no, has no, to... I was saying, like, have him, have him learn, your, you know, the concept of the oneness God. Like how, oh, I've never read a book on it. The oneness God for dummies. Or yeah, like yeah. That. I haven't read a book on it. I don't, I don't know, but you know, I'm sure there are very good uh, books out there from people who are oneness or, or people who are uh, strictly monotheist to reject the Trinity, who are Christian. Uh, but it's a hotly debated, it's the most hotly debated topic in the Christian world, you know. And the, the it's, I mean, uh, you're telling me last night he was just on a tear, you know, going to the Old Testament, and then he's talking about the temple ceremony and I would just kind of go and cross. I'd listen to it, and I didn't really want to interject. It was kind of a family dinner. But I thought, gosh, listening to you all the time, it's like you say all these great things. And I, I guess maybe I could go back and reference some of your shows, but I just was wondering if there's maybe something here. You know, take and read this book. And maybe, have him, maybe have him watch The Inquisition. Uh, we call it The Inquisition. Yeah. And have him take a look yeah. at that and see what that does for him. I will. I will. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, you know, I'm just going to say real quickly, my, my mom actually loves you. In fact, she's the one who introduced me to you. But, uh -huh. um, you know, she's, like I said, they moved on from New Order Mormon. But um, I found my mom, I found her, I found you through my mom. Huh. And then I've introduced other people. So, I mean, the word's really, the word about your ministry is really getting out there. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. In fact, there's this gentleman named Howard Storm who wrote a book called My Descent into Death. Who had uh, we were emailing back and forth about it, and then I mentioned you, and then he said, "Oh, I'll have to listen to him." And he wrote back saying, "Wow, I like the Sean McCraney guy." So, well, that's uh, really nice, I don't know. Eric. Worried about your ministry is getting out, Sean. Better well, be careful. Thanks to guys <laughs> like you. Thanks, my yeah, brother. Well, I appreciate all you do, Sean. And thank you very much. Thanks for calling. We'll talk to you later. All right, love you, brother. Love you too. Bye bye. Uh, some other emails. One, a man saw Bigfoot. He wanted to talk to me about that. <laughs> Truly, wanted to talk about the LDS teaching Bigfoot. And uh, uh, on Matt's show last week, uh, when there was a host, it wasn't Matt hosting. These are all kind of orbiting around that. And in fact, next week I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to approach the Trinity one more time in a short show and just give some things about what to consider because it is such a topic. But and think of it however you want. But someone called Matt's show last week when he had a guest host, a pastor on there, and he made a number of claims that I was told were made. One, that I don't support or endorse the Bible, uh, that I teach anything goes, and that I am a leftist. Those were the, the three claims that were made, and I just want to address those quickly. First, that I don't endorse the Bible. Uh, it's the only thing I endorse. I, I don't endorse anything else. Uh, so this is proven by our double every week, verse by verse, Bible teachings. It's proven by our refusal to even sing uh, 
popular Christian songs, which would make us much more popular. I've had so many people tell me, if you guys had a better worship, I'd come uh, constantly. <laughs> and, and I, you know, that's how they say it. And I, and so, but we believe in singing the passages. It's proven by my promotion of the Bible. But that I won't, however, let biblical interpretations separate me from those who claim Jesus. I will not. I refuse. I will, uh, I, the fact that I say that it's not perfect. It is not perfect, but the imperfections are insignificant. I always say that. They're insignificant. Uh, and I will not say that it must be taken literally or figuratively or allegorically. I'm not going to say that's up to somebody else. So, um, we allow the Spirit to decide how people are going to receive the Bible, but I, I really, it hurts me when, if someone gets on the air and just openly says, McCraney does not endorse the Bible. It's not true, and it's unfair. A second that I teach anything and everything goes. <laughs> uh, there's some truth to this, um, but like all things, it has to be taken contextually. First of all, people do what they're going to do. They do what they're going to do. Uh, people are going to believe what they want to believe, and people have that right. In fact, they have that responsibility to believe what they are going to believe. And it's not easy. So in a sense, I do have a style that seems to support the notion that anything and everything goes. I understand that accusation. Um, if someone tells me that they are living in, re in sin, my response to them is, what do you think of Jesus? Uh, if they tell me that they're gay, I say, what do you think of Jesus? Um, if they say they're not a Christian and they believe Jesus was a meth, I say, what can I teach you about Jesus that will change your mind? Uh, so, and if someone arrives at our study of the Word and uh, they, they say something like, um, I'm a homosexual adulterer atheist that eats house cats and I vote communist, I say, welcome. Grab a bagel and uh, have something to drink and hear the Word of God. So if we define this as teaching anything goes, uh, so be it. Uh, but I do not teach that anything goes. Part of the problem with our campus services is I teach the Bible as it is, and you know what? It's hard to hear. It's convicting. It, it makes you, it's tough to hear it as it's written. So I'm actually guilty of the opposite because I teach this is what the Bible says. Jesus says if you're married and you, and, you, and you get divorced for anything other than adultery to another person, you're an adulterer. That's what it says. That's what you are. I mean, I teach what it says. So anything goes. It's true in a way, but it's not true in how I teach the Word of God. I let God's Word dictate what it says, and we teach it. Finally, that I'm a leftist. Leftist, if that makes me a leftist, then use the title as you want, uh, you know, but like most titles, it's limited in scope. It's limited in, and it's, it's unfair. I am liberal when liberality is commended. I am orthodox and right-wing and conservative when that is, uh, is warranted. And that's the best I can say. We have Sean from Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. Uh, interesting, that's where I served my Mormon mission. Hopefully I didn't convert his parents. Sean, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hey, Sean, how are you? Good, how you doing? Doing pretty well. Are you anywhere well, near the restoration site of the Aaronic Priesthood? I mean, uh, well, actually, right now, I'm a truck driver, and I'm in New York City. Oh. But, um, yeah, I live like five minutes from that. Wow. So how's it going? 
but it's going pretty good. I had a question about that because um, they had a concert and I went to it, and I've been talking to the missionaries for like over a year. And two of the missionaries asked me if I could like run a like run a Bible study for them there, and I didn't know what to think of it. Wow, they're a little dumbfounded by the question. I'm like, because you know they don't view the Bible very highly. So I wanted to ask your opinion on it, like what that could mean. You know, uh, usually almost everything missionaries or LDS people do is typically to get you sucked into their culture and their group and to get you to convert. Almost everything is, is used to get you to convert if it's used in a corporate setting. To get you to come and teach the Bible and they know you're a Christian? Yeah. That's, that's really unique and I would take the opportunity and unless you, unless, I mean, you start to see that you're being used for some ulterior purpose and no one's listening and everyone's arguing with you or something, uh, I would take the opportunity and go and teach the Bible and, uh, and pray that God's Spirit will be with you and share the truth with them. And I'd start probably with the book of uh, Galatians and uh, start reading, uh, read the book of Galatians and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, the problem was they switched um, what's that called? They leaders campaign. Yeah, they changed, yeah. and the two that asked left. But I mean, I have their Facebooks, and I asked if. Well, they said they were interested, but I asked if they want to do it via video chat. So I'm waiting on the response there. They may have been moved because they were uh, they, because of they allowed you to step in and do what they were going to do. You know, you never know. I don't know, my brother, but uh, I would consider it an opportunity, and I'd take advantage of it if you can. I will. Thank you. All right, I my friend. I just wanted to see your opinion on it. Thanks for calling in. I thank you. Bye. See you later, Sean. Uh, we have uh, an email from Mark. We've got several emails. I'm not going to get to them. Sean, your daughters have every right to question Matt. However, this should have taken place privately because no one knew the history and I just think it ruined the entire the debate. I think that's a little extreme. I don't think it ruined the entire debate. I, I think it was something that was unfortunate. This was unprofessional, and I'm no longer tuning into your show. Uh, I felt bad for Matt. He's a son of a God. He's son of God just like you. Cheap shots don't belong in this arena. Uh, I didn't think there was any cheap shots, um, uh, but perhaps a mediation between your daughters and Matt is due. I'm ashamed that this is even on the internet. Shame on you for allowing that banner to get that far. And I agree. So I'll just take it. I agree. And uh, sorry you're not watching anymore. Uh, wrap, we'll wrap this up tonight. And um, some people, just to say this, and I'm I'd be really, I want to do this in defense of Matt. Um, what I'm about to say is in love for him. And it's nothing that I say is not said by him publicly, okay? I want to emphasize that I know Matt is a brother who loves the Lord. He is faithful. He's dutiful. He has a tremendous grasp of Scripture, obviously amazing. And it's a gift that we admire and we praise God that he shares. This past week, we've received a number of criticisms about Matt from our side. You know, your side's going to present criticisms. And many of them are brutal. Um, the most negative charges are that he's arrogant, he's self-centered, 
He is, uh, it's usually around those two things. And doesn't listen, arrogant, self-centered. Anyone who knows the word knows that human pride and arrogance are antithetical to God. And um, I used to think that Matt was arrogant and self-centered. And, uh, but he can recite the word like a rabbi. And he's, he fights for the word and he fights for truth. And so that conflict's unique. How he seems to have an arrogance about him but he is also so equipped with the word. I would suggest that instead of calling Matt arrogant and proud, we might say that Matt has a hard time seeing, appreciating, or understanding other people's points of view outside of his own. And the reason for this is because Matt is autistic. People don't know that. Uh, he has Asperger's. Or, and, and so he's a high-functioning autistic. But uh, this is what Matt says about himself. I am not just coming out with this. Anybody who meets him and talks with him, you go to dinner with him, that's one of the first things he'll tell you. I'm autistic, I, and, and I've been diagnosed with it. Uh, years ago, he told me he had Asperger's syndrome, and I didn't believe him because he's so high-functioning. I'm like, yeah, right, yeah, right. He goes, no, I, I really do. And uh, after spending time... I can see that it's true. And the word for autism comes from the word auto. It means self. And so in cases of severe autism, the person can't even communicate with the outside world. They're in their own self-world completely. And so fully self-centered. And, but in Matt's case, uh, it's not complete self-centeredness. He has an ability to empathize and, and, and listen and things. But when he seems like it's arrogance and it's pride. It's not. He just does not have the, the capacity, especially if, if he can't control that situation, he does not have that, that capacity to hang in there and hear what other people are saying. So this is a really good example because in most cases, most of us are probably autistic to some degree or another. I know I am. I know I don't want to hear people's ideas a lot. And I know I put a blinder up, and if it gets too much, I shut them down. So instead of throwing names at each other, which again, we're still on the peacekeeping mission, and there's difficult things, instead of throwing names at each other, and he's arrogant, and he's proud, and McCraney interrupts him, and he takes cheap shots, and McCraney doesn't know how to critically think. I got a lot of those this week, and that may be true too. But all of it, that's what the dark side wants. It wants us to divide when we disagree. The Spirit of God wants us to unite when we disagree. And that's when we're able to make some real steps. And it's going to take that from the smallest to the greatest things to have understanding. This in no way besmirches Matt Slick in terms of his ability to represent Orthodox Christianity. In none. In fact, he's, I mean, if you're going to use it, maybe like autistic savant. He's that skilled in what he does. But he has that problem. And that is what comes through when he says things like, I can show you, I can do it, I can show you that, I can do this. That's just how he is, and God made him that way. So we have to respect that. Next week we're going to go, and uh, I've come across some interesting insights relative to the, the idea of the Trinity. And again, we accept people who teach the Trinity, love the Trinity, support the Trinity. And, but I think some things we need to talk about, and we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere, I am an exile.
I can feel 